Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us this privilege to come and to be able to worship you. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you have bestowed upon our life. You are a benevolent God. And you're very hospitable. And we thank you, Father, that we have been created in your image and redeemed by Jesus to be able to demonstrate that same disposition to one another. And may we do that, God. And I pray this would be a unique day, a visitation of your spirit to our life in a way that maybe we haven't recognized ever or in a long time. And I pray that, God, this would truly be a unique day, a life-changing day for us, all of us, Lord, as we come together this morning and come back to pray tonight. Thank you for the miracles that you've been doing, Father, the wonders that you have been performing among us in these prayer meetings, God. And we give you the glory for it. <clears throat> in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn to two scriptures with me right now, Romans chapter 5 and Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I'd, I'd like to take a moment as we turn here to just refresh you on what we're studying right now, but we want to talk about saved by his life, saved by his life, and really what this means. And so in Romans chapter 5, which is a beautiful chapter, and um, it's it's really a a transitional chapter, but let me explain this to you. Paul is writing this book of Romans, and he is he is writing a book that brings the Jews and the Gentiles to the same footing. And that is whether the Gentiles who had no law and the Jews who had a law, the fact is that both stand guilty before God. Because the Jews sinned against the law, and they know it. And the Gentiles sinned in their conscience, and they know that. We all know that we've transgressed God. And then he says that the wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life. Then he goes into chapter 4, which is so beautiful because he gives how Abraham was justified by faith. And it wasn't on the basis of debt or merit that Abraham received his righteousness. But it was by faith. And Abraham believed God. And he did not waver in his belief of God. But he trusted and believed that God was able to do what God had promised him. And the Bible encourages us in Romans chapter 4 to have the same relationship with God on the basis of faith and grace rather than the basis of debt. <clears throat> That's a very difficult thing because our natural default from our fall is to have a relationship with God that's based on debt. That we have to do something. We have to earn something from God. Most of our relationships are like that. Even husbands and wives. I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. It's this barter situation. You know, a child comes home and maybe they didn't succeed as well as the parents wanted them to do. So they get punished rather than loved. And they get that. But if they did as good as the parents, if they met the parents' expectations, then maybe they would get praised. So most everything we've ever been involved in in life has been on this barter situation. If you do this and you do it good, then you will be accepted and you will be loved. But Abraham did not have that relationship with God because he didn't do anything good. He couldn't do anything good. But he did have faith and he did that right. And that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And he believed God. And God brought him into that. And the Bible goes in to the end of Romans 4, into chapter 5, telling us that this is how we enter in as well. And stand in this grace of God. And so chapter 5 begins to talk about how God was able to do that. Very simply. 
If the first man ever created did not do what God asked him to do and sinned and he ate from the fruit of the tree and he rebelled against God. And from that one act, all of humanity has been born into sin. And as a result of his transgression, all of us will die just because we're born of him. Then what incredible wisdom is there in God that God would send a second man into the earth and that man would be Jesus Christ and he would not sin. He would do exactly what he was supposed to do. He wouldn't even sin in his thoughts and he would be perfect before his father. And then whoever is born of him would be given everlasting life. Not on the basis of what they did or didn't do, but on the basis of their relationship with him. Because we're all sinners because we were born of Adam. And we're all saints if we're born of Jesus. And you have the choice to be born of Jesus. You really didn't have the choice to be born of Adam. But you do have the choice as to whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. And the choice to go to heaven is to come and give your hearts to Jesus Christ. And when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, all of his righteousness, all of his life, all of his benefits are imputed to your life. That is incredible. That is incredible that God would do that for us. And so we all talk about the death of Jesus and we appreciate his death and what he did for us at the cross because that was a tremendous act of mercy and love demonstrated towards all men. For by that, all men are welcome to come to God through Jesus Christ. But a lot of people get stuck at the cross. And as I said last week, we don't like to see Jesus on a crucifix because we say he's no longer on the cross. But we also don't like to see Jesus in the grave because he's no longer in the grave. And he is ascended and he is in heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. And so it is important for us to understand that an incredible thing took place when Jesus died for us. But there's also something even great as a result of him living for us. And this is found in Romans 5 verse 10. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And that means something now that meant something yesterday and it means something tomorrow. This means that I am being saved by the life of Jesus Christ. Not just simply his past act that he demonstrated 2,000 years ago at the cross. But also through his resurrection and ascension, his life right now that he is living gives me a much more benefit in my life. And I would pray that you as a believer would know this experientially. And so the Bible, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2, talks a little bit about this life of God that is in us. And um, Carla and I hadn't really talked about this, but she mentioned this today, that Jesus actually lives in us. He didn't live in the Jewish people. The, the temple of their life, they were not the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he lives in us. In Philippians chapter 2, he tells us this, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't think you worked anything that was not there. All right. Because he says in verse 13, it is God. That's grace, which works in you. That is grace at work in your life. So God is working in you two things. He's giving you the will and he's giving you the ability or the power to do his good pleasure. So if you do it, you can't really say, look what I did. But what you can say is, look what I believed God was doing in me. And I labored in that. And God has produced this in my life. I didn't just sit around and say, well, if God wants me to be a prayer warrior, he'll do that. I didn't just sit around and say, well, if God really wants me to read the Bible, he'll give me a love for the Bible. No, I didn't do that. I believed that God was in me and I believed that God was stirring things up in me. And so I might hear a preacher talk about prayer and I begin to understand prayer is important. Fasting is important. The Bible is important and I want to be in the word of God. And it's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I'm being worked on by the Holy Ghost inside of me. And I want to labor by faith according to that. And God is giving me the will and the power to do it. And that is the grace of God inside of our life. That is the life of Jesus Christ. But there are so many people who think they're going to heaven and they're so disinterested in God. They're so religious. Even some of you in here today, you just like the church idea. You just like it. You just like the moral idea of church. You just like the religious idea of God. And, and, and it makes you feel good. You derive a carnal pleasure out of it. And it just makes you feel good by that. And there's a lot of people like that. But this desire of God, this, this interest of God, this provoking of God in our life, is life of Jesus Christ in us that literally transforms everything. I believe is absolutely phenomenal. And so I want to talk about this. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the Thessalonians, faithful is he who called you who will also do it. And so God does these things in us. He really does. God is living his life in us and he is living his life through us. It is Jesus that is living the life of righteousness in us. I can do anything, but there are things that I'm doing in regards to God that I understand this is not me. These desires are not me. The the desire to forgive somebody and not murder them is not me. That is that is the desire of God going on in my life, and it shocks me. The the will to forgive somebody, the will to let go of bitterness without justice in this world is not me. But that is the work of God inside of me. The the letting go of the hatred and the anger and the animosity and the jealousy. Is the work of God that is going on inside of me. And so he does it. And he lives this life through us. He ministers to the needs of people around us. That's what's so exciting. When believers can get out of themselves. And get out of this false humility of. I just don't think God could ever use me. I'm not worthy. It's such a false humility. You know. And when you can get out of that. And you can just begin to say. You know Christ who is in me is so great and worthy. And I'm just going to trust the Lord to use my life. And then God begins to do things to your life. And you're like. Wow this Christianity is so exciting. You know. And um, Jesus is so exciting. 
And uh, I, I pray you would all know that, not the boredom of religion, but Jesus is really incredible. The one who goes into all of the world is the one who is doing it in you and through you, and he preaches through you. And this is the beauty of it. And I'm saved by his life. This is relief. This is relief to me because it is not based upon my intelligence or my power or my even my own discipline, but faith, because there's a discipline in faith and it's very strong and it's very powerful. And so I want to look at Ephesians chapter three, because if you're really to understand this, then you have to come to the place of realizing it's a spiritual understanding and it's a spiritual empowerment. And so even in saying this, I'm bringing you to this scripture with the anticipation that the Holy Spirit will show you something. Because even what I'm about to read to you and explain, you do not have the intellect to grasp it. And I'm not trying to insult you. I don't either. And the Bible tells us that. And so this is something that can only be spiritually apprehended. And I just pray that as you sit there, you would begin to pray For the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. And because this is where really the transformation of our daily Christian life is happens. And and we just begin to enter into this place with God that is really exciting. It is really amazing life to live with Jesus Christ. And for me, I have observed that very few Christians really are even attempting to know this. And I pray that you will. You can't make anybody do it, but I read it to you again today with the intention that the Holy Spirit will get a hold of us and teach us something spiritual. So in Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle says this in verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, and he's, he's writing to Christians, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, I would just pause there, and I don't know what you're doing right now, but I know in my spirit I begin to pray. I begin to beseech God, please do that in me. Please give me that. If there is something that can only take place in my life, according to the strength of my inner man. And if the Holy Spirit is the only one that can strengthen that inner man, please do it, God. And I begin to pray that. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if you're just reading pages on a book and you think, oh, okay, that's great. You know, there's an inner man, there's strength there, you know, maybe one day. But you you miss so much with that. And so when you read the Bible, you should be praying it as you're reading it. And you should be looking at these things and understanding, wow, this is the apostle's prayer. And actually, it's not the apostle's prayer. It's the Holy Spirit's prayer, if you will. Because he's the one that's inspiring Paul to write it. And this is his desire for believers. That they would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So I have an inner man. And it is that inner man that has the invitation of intimacy with God. God's not going to come and speak to my head if you will. Men do that. But God's going to speak to my spirit. 
And God's going to give revelation in my spirit. And that's what I need to have strong. So we go and what do we do? We educate our minds. We teach ourselves Hebrew. We teach ourselves Greek. We want to get a a library of, of commentaries. We want to read what other men have read. We want to know what other people have thought about these things. And I'm not saying that those things are wrong. But man, if we're really going to know God and be useful in the church, I got to go to seminary. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, though it can be tremendously dangerous. But I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But God's going to speak to my spirit. Therefore, if he's speaking to us spiritually, it doesn't matter how old you are. Somebody says, how can a five-year-old really be born again? How can a 50-year-old be born again? You know, you explain that mystery to me. But I can tell you this, the five-year-old spirit can know everything about God that a 50-year-old spirit can know. You know, if it, because it's spiritual revelation, but all these intellectuals come around and want to, you know, put limitations on everything. And that's what's damaged the church and the church life, because it's not by his life that we're being saved. It's by boards and deacons and elders and preachers that are touching the house of God, trying to make something good happen. And it's just get out of the way. Let his life work. It would be tremendous what God would do. And so he says this, just going back to this again, verse 16, because I was trying to give you time to pray it. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, what happens if that takes place? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, let's stop there. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Isn't that an evangelistic term? Isn't it? Isn't that what we tell the lost when we're sharing the gospel with them? That Jesus may dwell in your hearts by faith. Whoa, time out. He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to believers. This is not a message of evangelism to the lost. This is a message of the deep desire of the apostle for believers to have this awakening, if you will, this relationship of intimacy with God. And he's telling believers, there is a relationship with Jesus Christ you do not automatically get to have. But you have the invitation to it. If you would allow the Spirit of God to strengthen your inner man, then Jesus would dwell in your heart by faith. And you, as a result of that, being rooted and grounded in love, you would be able to comprehend with all saints the breadth, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That's why I wasn't trying to insult you earlier. When I was trying to say that I'm explaining something to you that your intellect cannot grasp, it is above that. I wasn't trying to insult you, but he tells us right there in verse 19, there is a relationship with God in love by the Holy Spirit and a strong inner man that God wants to give you that your brain cannot process, regardless of how smart you are. It passes your knowledge. And so I just say that to you guys. How many of you want that life that is much more How much more shall we be saved by his life that lives in us? And yet it is so foreign to so many people who go to church. But again, there is a love. 
that we are invited to know experientially that is no limitation, no length, no depth, no height, no breadth. To know the love of Christ is experiential and it passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. And now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. How? According to the power that works in us. Well, guess what? If you go back to verse 16 and your inner man is getting stronger and stronger and stronger by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more powerful your inner man becomes, the more he is able to do exceeding abundantly through you. If his exceeding abundance takes place in us according to his power that works in us, then the more of his power that can work in you, the more of his supernatural wonders will he do through you. It's not the refusal of God to work in the earth. It is the lack of capacity that believers have. For this dynamo power of God to work through us. We're not able. We don't have the capacity of being friends with Jesus. We have the possibility but not the capacity. We have the invitation. But we're limited by our intellect. And our spirits may may be very, very weak. And it is through all of this power that's working in us that unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. And I think about that throughout all ages. And people say, oh, the book of Acts, I wish we could see that again. And God's saying, well, I sure wanted it to happen. I wanted it to happen through all ages, you know. And praise God, it is happening in many people's lives that are believing God and living by his life and not making excuses as to why they can't do this or that or whatever and, and whatever might go on in society or the world. And, and the Bible explains itself. So the explanation, what does it mean for Jesus to dwell in my heart by faith and I can experience this life? What does that mean? I, I mean, I'm a believer And I believe that Jesus is in me by faith. So it means chapter 4 verse 18. That your understanding is darkened and you're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And so you're alienated from his life. You know what that word alienated means? A non-participant. You lack familiarity with him. You know all about him, but you're not very intimate with him. Your life is not so much a life of faith. As it is a life of maybe discipline and habits. And so your life can absolutely be transformed by the life of Jesus Christ. If you would believe him to do it. And you would allow him to do it. And he would save the church of arrogance and pride and haughtiness. And church splits and divisions and everything else like that. Because his life doesn't do that. But religious life does that, and our lives typically do that. So go to John chapter 6, and I want you to see this with me. We, we touched on this last week. I just want to explain this to you very quickly and simply. The, Jesus is standing before the crowds, and he says to them in verse 53, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my, my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall never die. And then if you go down, he says in verse 60, 63, um, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. He's, abs- he's, a- he's not talking literally that you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's by no means trying to insinuate that the wafer and the cup actually become the flesh and the blood of Jesus. These are spiritual words that he's talking. And it's very simple. This is what it means. There was a huge movement in that day where people could not believe that God would literally come in the flesh. It was called Gnosticism. And they did not believe that the God who was holy and powerful would actually, after that, come down and mingle in the affairs of a filthy and and carnal and dirty world like this. And so there's no way that God in the person of Jesus would ever come to earth. And so this was Gnosticism. And so what Jesus is dealing with in that culture, and even today, he, people deal with this, you know, that God became a man. It is to believe that this one, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, is actually the son of the living God. That the, he, he is the eternal God who was incarnate and became a man and was born of a virgin. And he lived a sinless life. And you believe, you eat that flesh. In other words, you believe that one of all that walked in humanity, that is the one who is the unique and only son of God in the flesh. And you, you believe in him. You take that in and to drink his blood, the life is in the blood. And so it's to take in his life. You're taking his life into you. And that's, 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 that's all that Jesus is implying there. And his life is the spirit And so you're taking in the spirit of Christ, the life of Christ, and you're believing in this one, Jesus Christ, that he is unique and no other one is like him. And so you believe and you put your faith in that. You take that life in you. It's it's really just as simple as that. And it really should not be or need to be any more confusing that like a lot of people might try to make this. And so Jesus said, Back in John 5, I can do nothing by myself. Whatever I see the Father do, I do. Whatever I hear the Father say, I say. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10 how Jesus of Nazareth was anointed with the Holy Ghost. And he went about doing good, healing those that were oppressed, casting out devils. That the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Jesus confessed that himself in the Gospel of Luke. And he had a unique ministry to go and to bring the Gospel and to heal the poor, the, the, the sick. To bring the Gospel to the poor. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To take care of those that were abused and broken. This was his unique anointing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then when Jesus is leaving the world, he says something that is absolutely incredibly radical. That I am going to give my spirit to all of you. This same spirit that I have been walking in. The same Holy Ghost that is going to raise me from the dead. Is the same Holy Ghost I'm giving to you. It is necessary that I go away. Because he has to come. He's going to be so amazing in your life. 
It's going to be better than me being there. And yet so many Christians have no knowledge of that. They have no knowledge of that because Jesus doesn't dwell in their hearts by faith. They don't experience this love of God that has a measureless dimension in it. And this power that works in them. They might be able to count back sometimes in their life where I experienced the power of God moving. But this is to be, it's, it, it, this is to be intimacy and communion and friendship with God. Oh, and it's so beautiful, beloved. It is just so beautiful. And I would long for you to know this. And so I want to conclude with this. So how does faith release this divine life? This much more. Shall we be saved by his life? How does our faith release that or do that? And I would say initially, I hope you've been doing what I've mentioned to you. I hope you've been praying this whole time for Ephesians chapter 3 to become a reality to your life. Because it's not going to be because you listen to me. And if you don't care... I would ask you to repent of a, of a heart that doesn't care. And I would ask you to not have pride in your life. To think that you have this incredible intimacy with God. And let the Lord take you where he wants you to go with him. Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to miss out on anything. And he wants you to have it all. And everything you want is in him. You're not happy outside of him. You're not happy in your misery, your guilt, your sin, your darkness, your grief, your depression, your stress, your anger, your bitterness, your personal hurt feelings, your self-pity. You're not happy in any of that. Why hold on to it? Much more be saved by his life and let all those things in. So I would say preliminarily that you would do those things if that's a word Preliminarily. All right, I'll I'll give you a few things. Learn to live by the unction of the Holy Spirit. Learn to live by the unction of the Holy Spirit. Every single day of your life, the Holy Spirit is in communion with you and he is speaking to you and he is moving in you and he is telling you things that are unique to your life and to your day and to your situation and the people that are around you. Develop an intimacy with him where you can discern his movings inside of you. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. Discern that. Don't be so occupied with what other Christians want you to look like or be doing. But rather discern what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. Because he is the one that gives you the will and the ability to do it. The church will give you a lot of things to do. And you you may not have the ability to do it. But there's nothing that the Holy Spirit is asking you to do that is impossible for you to do. He gives you the power to do it. But you've got to discern that. You've got to have that relationship. You can't go to church and say, what is my ministry? You can't go sit down with a pastor and say, what does God want me to do? What is the call on my life? I have no idea. I know you're a king and a priest unto God. Live in that. But specifically for your life, I don't know exactly what it is. God has to show you that. And what is he dealing with in your life? You know, 
What are the things? You might run into some Christian that says, this is what God has brought me through and God delivered me from this and God delivered me from that and, and God did this and God told me to get rid of my TV and that's what you need to do. Well, whoa, 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 time out. If that's what God's showing them, great. He's giving them the power to do it. But what is God showing you? And I guarantee you, he's showing you something. If you're cheating on your taxes, he's telling you that right now. If you're looking at pornography, he's telling you that right now. If you've been lying, if you've been cheating, if you've been angry, if you've been bitter, you know what he's dealing with you about. And he will set you free. Isn't that wonderful? And that's the grace of God. It works in your life. And maybe you won't be so pleasing to all of the people around you right now, but you'll be pleasing to God. And you'll never please the people. They don't please themselves, so stop trying to do it. There's probably not a person in this room that is just absolutely happy with themselves. Frustrated with themselves. And you're going to try to make them happy? Good luck. So please God and walk with God. The second thing I would say is this. Function by faith in Jesus' new covenant instructions. Function by faith in that. Let it be by faith. Here are some of them. Rejoice. Some of you won't do that today. Even in church. You're not going to do it. You're going to sit there like a Baptist. You're not going to do it. And and, and look, I, I, let me say, I have been around a lot of Baptists who are far more happy and enthusiastic about God than a lot of Pentecostals. I've been in Pentecostal churches. This is a Pentecostal church. Are you kidding me? So rejoice. Forgive. If you're a Baptist in here, forgive me. <laughs> forgive. You do it by faith. Praise. Praise him. That is one of the chief calls to new covenant believers is to praise God. You have to be loud. You show me one place in the Bible where somebody's praising God quietly. You have to be loud. Your whole body's into it. Because you're lifting your hands, you're dancing, you're sitting, you're falling, you're standing. You gather together with believers. You gather together. You never forsake it and you never stop. You gather together. As a matter of fact, it even increases. As the coming of the Lord comes. Go into all the world. Go. If you can't go, give. So somebody can. Pray. Preach. Every one of you. Preach. Lay your hands on the sick. Pray for their healing. Cast out devils. These are just a few things that are new covenant instructions for all of us to do. Get by faith. Get busy with it. Your life will change. Exercise the gifts of the spirit that are in your life. Don't ever wake up on any given day and just think you're going to have a normal day today. Every day is supernatural. Every day is exciting. 
Every day is a day where impossibilities are going to take place. And the gifts of the Spirit, if that is going to happen, the gifts of the Spirit have to operate through my life. So whenever you see a need, ask yourself, why did God let me see that need? Certainly not to gossip about it. It's to do something about it. It's to answer that need with he who lives in me. Philemon chapter 1, which is only one chapter, um, makes a a statement. I think it's around verse 6 or verse 7. And it says this, that the faith, that the faith in you is to be communicated so it can be effectual, acknowledging every good thing that is in you in Christ. Well, what good thing in Christ is not in you? It's not saying what good thing is in you. What good things in Christ are in you? Is Jesus the healer? It's not a trick question. Is Jesus the healer? Yes. Does the healer live in you? Is healing in you? Yes. Is the ability to preach in you? Is Jesus the preacher? Is Jesus the teacher? Is is Jesus the one who casts demons out? Is Jesus the miracle worker? So what is it you can't do? If he lives in you? So communicate it. Give that. Exercise that. Pray is another thing. And when I pray, I'm not saying that we go and we beg or plead as though God is unwilling to do something. But we expose by faith every situation as it is and as it arises. And that's what we do. And we expose it to the all-sufficient Jesus Christ. I don't need to walk around with some... Attitude that denies reality. If I've got a cold, I've got a cold. Oh, don't confess a cold. Why not? If I've got a cold, I've got a cold. If I've got a fever, I've got a fever. If I've got a broken bone, I've got a broken bone. I'm not afraid to confess that. I'm dealing with reality. But I'm going to bring these things to the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There is a sickness here that we need you to heal. We need you to deal with this. We need you to handle this. And that's what prayer in in a lot of ways is. And it doesn't mean you can't go and petition God. But can anything be impossible for Jesus? No. Is Jesus not adequate? He is adequate. What problem, what responsibility do you have? What temptation are you facing that Jesus is inferior to? And there's absolutely nothing. So by faith, apply His adequacy to it. Don't be afraid of it. Step into it. You've got a friend that has gone through something horrible. You've got a drug addict that is suffering from addictions. Is calling you to come pray with him. You're terrified because you don't know what to do. Great. You're terrified. You don't know what to do. But somebody living in you does. And so let his life work. When you step back from something. When you can't forgive When you cannot preach, when you cannot prophesy, when you cannot handle the situation anymore, you are asserting that Jesus in you has nothing to give you for that situation. And you know that's not true. And why are believers exhausted? Because they're trying to produce a life apart from his life. Believers are weary and they're tired and they're burning out and they are exhausted because they know what Jesus wants. They know what God wants and they're trying to give it to him. 
and they're tired and they're weary. They're much like the Pharisees. And no wonder you're tired. It's like buying a new car. It's got power and ability and everything. And you buy the new car and you come home and you, you, you put it in neutral and you push it everywhere. You're going to be exhausted anywhere you go because you're pushing it everywhere. Somebody says, what in the world are you doing? You understand what you got under the hood? You know what kind of power's in that motor? And they're, what do you, what do you mean? He says, let me sit there for a minute and they turn it on, you know, and it powers up and then they sit down here and they put it in drive and they just take off. Say, wow, this thing is amazing. I could go anywhere and not get tired. I thought I had to push this everywhere and that's what Jesus did. He came into this world and he showed humanity. Man, look what I want to put under the hood. I mean, I want to put some power in your life. And so turn the ignition on faith, put it in drive, works, and watch what God will do. And you're like, oh my God, this is Christianity. Thank you, God. This is incredible. I have been so tired pushing the religion of Christianity on everybody. And I don't want to do that anymore. And so this is being saved by his life. You expose every hill, every circumstance, every hindrance, every opportunity to the divine power of Jesus Christ who lives in you. And you will be amazed at what he does. Now, listen, I'll say this. If this is a carnal exercise to you, you're going to be very discouraged. But if you can become acquainted with his life, according to Ephesians 3... And you can become strong in your inner man because the Holy Spirit's work in there to make you powerful. You will be amazed and thrilled and rejoicing at the life that Jesus Christ desires to give to you. I close with this. To be in Christ, that is redemption. For Christ to be in you, that is sanctification. To be in Christ makes you fit for heaven. For Christ to be in you makes you a king in the earth. To be in Christ changes your destination. For Christ to be in you changes your destiny. To be in Christ makes heaven your home. For Christ to be in you makes this world his workshop. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that your power in your life would fill us. I pray, God, that there would be faith in people, in all of us. To begin to pray and believe that Ephesians chapter 3 can be fulfilled in our life. And that Jesus can indeed dwell in my heart by faith. And I can experience your love that is beyond human understanding. And your power can work so mightily in me. That Lord you will do wonders through our life. And Jesus will get the glory in this hour. We love you and we thank you for the life of Jesus and that he is alive and he is at the right hand of the throne of God and interceding for us. And at the same time, he's in us by the Holy Ghost. And let us live by that in Jesus name. Amen.